game, 8.40 here. So I was up at uh, 4 a.m. That's time I usually wake up on during during the week. And I have been powered, not by this woman, Heidi Pree, but she's excellent, right? She's got a great video here, How to Metabolize Emotional Pain. But by this woman, Anastasia, the singer, right? She's got the second best song on Chance that I've heard next to uh, Air Supply, right? Air Supply's got that classic, Chances. But... Uh, Take This Chance by Anastasia. I'm not afraid to let go of what I have become and everything that I knew before is setting with the sun. And no, it's not that hard to say goodbye. And now I know that it's okay to cry. Right? You're my melody. I'll harmonize the songs we never sung. Never thought in a million years that I could watch while I disappear. All of a sudden, I see it clear what to do. I'm going to take this chance and do something that I never tried. Right? I'm going to make this moment matter till the end of time. I made mistakes through all my life and I'm the same place every time. I'm going to take this chance and do something I've never tried. So our good deeds are our ambassadors that go before us. So I was up at 4 a.m. and I'm going to do this live stream as a good deed. It's going to be my ambassador traveling ahead of me wherever I go in the world. Right? There this live stream will be as my ambassador. So when I do volunteer work, when I do work work, there this... Right when I when I get out there, meet my responsibilities. When I'm more of a giver than a taker with my most important relationships. All right. When I'm honest and trustworthy and forthright. All right. When I'm out there doing good deeds. All right. They are my ambassadors out ahead of me. I love that that metaphor. How good deeds are ambassadors that go out ahead of us. And then the the classic by Air Supply. There's a chance you'll be there wondering what to do, how to play my role. I'll leave it up to you. If I disguise my smile, it gives too much away, right? Women are so good at reading what's, what's going on with your face. And uh, it's, it's a little bit scary because I, I so often feel emotionally naked, like in front of, front of a wise woman, because she often knows much more about what's going on with me than I do. But if I'm headed in the right direction, sending my good deeds out in front of me as ambassadors, I don't have to be as concerned. Right, uh, terrific article here in New York Magazine. The Swift Boater coming for Biden with co-pilot Susie Wiles, Chris Lasavita, has brought discipline to the Trump campaign. Is that enough to win? So Trump recognizes that if he doesn't win the 2024 campaign, he'll end up in prison. This campaign is so much more professional than the shambolic 2016 and 2020 efforts. And so it's easy to get distracted by the crazy things that Trump says and does. But the actual campaign is being run by political professionals. New York Magazine. supremely competent nuts and bolts guy, says Donald Trump Jr. He doesn't care about getting credit. He doesn't care about stroking his own ego. He only cares about getting the job done and delivering for my father. He's also not afraid to throw some bombs on Twitter when necessary, which is something I can obviously relate to and very much appreciate. Trump has notoriously liked setting aides against each other vying for his affection. Like when he made Reince Priebus his first White House chief of staff and Steve Bannon chief strategist, with both of them leaving the new administration within seven months. But people close to Trump today say that even he is tired of the antics, and with the 2024 election now possibly determining whether or not he goes to prison, he has opted for a more professional approach. 2016 was a totally shambolic operation, Just a guy on a plane surrounded by a rotating cast of jokers, says Liam Donovan, a Republican strategist. 
By 2020, you had a more professionalized operation, but the campaign was led by his web designer until the home stretch. He came close with the B team. And now we get to see what happens when you bring in some of the most shrewd, calculating, and ruthless operators in the party. The change is clear to one veteran of both of Trump's prior campaigns. It's not like apples and oranges. It is like apples and elephants, they say. I honestly couldn't tell you where Susie ends and Chris begins. Wiles has been more... Wait, what happened to the sound? I'm talking okay. about the way you view the world vis-a-vis -vis expectations management, where the word no doesn't exist, Basavita told two Trump campaign veterans on the Line Drive podcast last month. Don't tell me it can't be done. Tell me how it can get done. There's no daylight between she and I. And if there is, we work it out privately, but there hasn't been. We talk five or six times a day when we're not actually physically together in the campaign headquarters or on the road. It's a structure that traditionally would not work because everybody wants to be the top person in a campaign, but our goal is to win. I can give a shit about who's first. La Civita, 57, got his start in politics after serving in the Gulf War. Anyway, they're just uh, surprisingly competent this time around, and they, they have a, a whole different focus than in 2016, right? Even in 2020, Trump was largely running as an insurgent. And this time around, they're trying to come with a message that uh, will, will restore sanity and safety, right? The message is built around inflation, built around the country as a whole standing on the world stage, is stopping endless wars, stopping World War III, is putting the issues that people care about in the forefront. So I often talked about we weren't born yesterday, right? Uh, political advertising doesn't change a lot of minds, what it can do is it can take issues that are latent for people or not fully in focus and make them more in focus, make them crystal clear for people. And it sounds like that's exactly what this Trump campaign is doing. It's not some difficult to understand Washington DC dreamed up every single day. They see the major issues facing the country, right? That the Biden administration foreign policy has been most disastrous since World War II. And People are tired of these endless wars, right? We, we've unnecessarily provoked Russia, and we, we have a major war in Europe, completely unnecessary. We are unnecessarily provoking China, possibly leading to war over Taiwan. And we have incentivized Russia to then create wars all over the globe to distract the United States from its primary peer competitor, which is China. So people see the major issues, inflation, right? the first issue they have to deal with, the high cost of energy, the cost of groceries, and uh, the endless wars that we are stoking under the Biden administration's foreign policy. And finally, we've got a clear you know, political campaign, a professional campaign from Donald Trump. So underneath all the noise, all the hullabaloo, all the crazy things that he says and does, right, 
behind that, you've got a, a professional team running a very sharp campaign, which is right. Right now, standing right here, I think Donald Trump has to be the favorite to be next president of the United States. So I was reading Moby Dick today. And uh, the chapters are usually pretty short. So I've got it as an audible book. So by reading, I mean, I was listening to the audible book. So the audible book runs about uh, 25 hours. And uh, chapter 93 takes over after the ship that uh, the author is traveling on has an encounter with a French ship and they have derision for the French, right? Because the French are different, right? This is an American ship and they have derision for the French. And now the most significant event, right? Uh, which ended in providing the sometimes madly merry and predestinated craft with a living and ever accompanying prophecy of whatever shattered sequel might prove her own. So in the whale ship, it's not everyone that goes in the boats, right? So not everyone is equally gifted, right? Different groups have different gifts. In fact, in the United States, right, there are a disproportionate number of African-Americans who drown. So you can make arguments about uh, the density of bones, or you could make social arguments about uh, being in a generally lower socioeconomic class, so they're less likely to get swimming lessons. But disproportionately, a huge number of African-Americans drown compared to other groups. And not everyone on a whale ship is going out in the boats pursuing the whale, right? These shipkeepers are hardy fellows, but they happen to be an unduly slender, clumsy, or timorous bloke in the ship. And uh, a guy who was African-American uh, named Pippin, right? Pip by abbreviation. He went into into the boat chasing the whale. So Pip and Doughboy made a match like a black pony and a white one of equal developments, though of dissimilar color. But while hapless Doughboy was by nature dull and torpid in his intellect, Pip, though tender-hearted, was at bottom very bright with that pleasant, genial, jolly brightness peculiar to his tribe. So Daniel Hawthorn has this idea that different groups have different gifts. A tribe which ever enjoy all heaven holidays and festivities with finer, freer relish than any other race. There's a famous black novelist, black American novelist, I think, Our Eyes Beheld God. What was that? Our Eyes Beheld uh, God. What's the, what's the name of that, that book? But uh, she said that uh, if, if white people had the opportunity to be, be black just for one Saturday night, they, they'd never go back. So Hawthorne thinks that uh, some groups are more social than others, and that just fits with my life experience. In my life experience, blacks are more outgoing, more social, hold more parties, right? seem to get more energy out of interacting with others than, say, East Asians, who tend to be less social, less outgoing than Caucasians. So the only people who've ever told me that I look like James, uh, James Bond were African-Americans. Right, because they are just more outgoing. In my experience, life experience, like African Americans give more compliments than uh, European Americans, who in turn give more compliments than East Asian Americans. So there do seem to be, you know, generalizable differences, and you can try to attribute it to biology or to culture or to a combination of geography and genetics, whatever. But in the world that around us, right, there, there seem to be these generalizable differences. These. That's the outlook here by Nathaniel Hawthorne, the author of Moby Dick. 
And he says, for blacks, the year's calendar should show naught but 365 Fourth of Julys and New Year's Days. And I think that's an outrageous observation. Right? I mean, many many blacks believe that if if non-blacks could be black just for Saturday night, they'd never want to go back. Nor smile so. While I write that this little black was brilliant, for even blackness has its brilliancy. Pip loved life and all of life's peaceable securities, so that the panic-striking business in which he'd somehow unaccountably become entrapped chasing after whales had most sadly blurred his brightness and become subdued. He'd once enlivened many a frolic. But now, here in the clean air of day, suspended against a blue-veined neck of a whale, the pure water diamond drop will healthful glow. Right, But out here amongst the whales... It uh, changes him. So you can have one event that forever changes you. And so as he was out there on the boats chasing the whales, right, he got caught up in a line and went into the water. And at that very moment, the stricken harpooned whale starts on a fierce run. The line straightens and, uh, and poor Pip comes all firming up to the, to the boat, remorselessly dragged there by the line, which had taken several turns now around his chest and neck. So very life is at risk. So luckily there was a capable person in the boat and he snatches the boat knife and he cuts the line. And uh, Pip, his face is turning blue. He's choking. He, he's dying. And he's, he's wishing, do it for God's sake, do it. And all passes by in a flash. And then they cut the line and uh, the whale is lost, right? Because of this Pip's incompetence, the whale is lost but Pip is sailed. So often we are reduced. The effectiveness of our group is completely reduced to our least competent member. So as soon as he recovers himself, he is assailed by yells and execrations from the crew because the crew is paid based on how much money the ship gets for the whale oil that they secure on this trip. So his getting caught up in the line and then forcing the cutting of the line and the loss of the whale. All right, this costs the crew an enormous amount of money. Just like if you're in a business or any kind of group, all right, the least competent members of your group will, will you know, cost you dearly. And so the head of the boat, then in a plain business-like but still half-humorous manner, like curses Pip officially, and then unofficially gives him much wholesome advice. And the substance of the advice is never jump from a boat. Well, except for certain occasions, but the, the, all the rest was indefinite. So the soundest advice was stick to the boat, right? That's the motto in whaling. But cases will sometimes happen when leap from the boat is still better. Moreover, as if perceiving at last that if he should give undiluted conscientious advice to Pip, he'd be leaving him too wide a margin to jump in for the future, right? Stub suddenly stops all extemporizing, and just concludes with the peremptory command, stick to the boat, Pip, or by the Lord, I won't pick you up. So if you jump in, right, we can't afford to lose whales by the likes of you. A whale would sell for 30 times more than you would in Alabama. Bear that in mind and don't jump anymore, right? So, yeah, man loves his fellow man, but man is inherently a money-making animal. And this propensity will often interfere with his benevolence. So, a lot of sharp observations in Moby Dick, and this just rings so true to life. Like, how do you give advice to people of various? Oh, 
Herman Melville, that's the author, not Nathaniel Hawthorne. Thank you. So how do you give advice to people with uh, various levels of IQ? And this is what uh, public health authorities got into trouble with during COVID, right? They had to try to boil down advice so that it would be understood by people with 80 or 90 IQ. And there was a hilarious article in The Onion about how leading health officials in Washington were going to send you know, every member of the United States a pamphlet on probabilistic statistics so that they could actually you know, weigh up how they wanted to deal with COVID and you know, how much of a risk they'd take with socializing, whether to wear a mask and whether to, to shake hands. But it, it's really hard. Yeah, I was just trying to see if you were paying attention. Yes, of course it was Herman Melville. Right, but in life, it's really hard to give the same advice to people with different levels of IQ, right? The, the higher the level of IQ, generally speaking, the more emendations and specifications and contingencies you can build into what you're saying. And so often you start out giving advice to someone who you just presume is the same level of IQ as yourself, but then you realize if it's an employee or someone of a lower level of IQ than yourself, you got to start boiling it down, boiling it down, boiling it down. And that's why so much public health advice during COVID seems so stupid, right? If you have an above room temperature IQ, because our leaders had to boil things down so that they became understandable by people with, you know, an 80 or a 90 IQ. So there was another time and uh, Pip jumped out of the boat yet again. And this time the boat just left him behind. Right? He'd been warned. It was a beautiful, blue, bounteous day. The, the sea was calm and cool. And uh, Pip just jumped out of the boat and he was left bobbing up and down in the sea. And uh, there were no measures taken to try to rescue him. And so the boat just kept going. And there became a whole mile of shoreless ocean between Pip and the boat. Right? And he felt like a lonely castaway. So I feel comfortable swimming like half a mile offshore, but for other people, it would just you know, drive him mad. Now, was the boat leaving Pip to his fate? No, there were two other boats in its wake, and he thought they would come over and pick up Pip fairly quickly. But those two boats also just left the guy alone, right? Because if you have to bet between someone's desire for survival and making money is key to survival and their benevolence, all right, bet on people putting a priority on making money and survival rather than being kind, particularly to someone who's of a member of an outgroup. So all these boats just pass Pip by, and he sees all these whales now closing in on him. And the, all the boats are far away. All the crews in the boats are just intent on getting whales. And uh, Pimp's, her, Pip's ringed horizon just begins to expand around him. And now, at the last moment, the ship itself comes along and rescues him. But from that hour on, Pip became an idiot, right? The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but it had drowned the infinite of his soul, right? So he wasn't carried down alive to the wondrous depths of the ocean, but he had seen eternity, right? He'd seen the multitudinous God, omnipresent coral insects. He saw an enormous, you know, ocean between him and any help of rescue he saw god's foot upon the treadle of the loom and he heard his shipmates calling him mad and he went mad he just couldn't handle it so 
don't don't come between people as much as you can help it and their best interests. Then here's another excellent passage that I just listened to this afternoon. Talking about felicity, right? So th- there's no joy that uh, is like the joy that we get from family, right? So the highest earthly felicities, the highest earthly happiness, all right, they don't really measure up to the normal joy that we should expect and hope to get from family, all right? We can have our hero systems. We can attach all sorts of mystical significance to things, all right? We can try to impose ourselves on the world around us. We can work hard. But in the end, what it comes down to is the most attainable happiness for most people, all right, comes from family. Right, it's not with the intellect for most people. It's not from our various fancies, but felicity for most men comes with a wife, a home, a bed, children, the table, the saddle, the fireside. Right, a place of your own, your own castle. That's that's the most likely source of attainable felicity, happiness, for for most of us. Good little summary on Iran here from Peter Zion. So you'll notice a lot of people, a lot of groups claim to be the longest ongoing civilization. I hear Jews claiming this all the time. You can make a good case that it's Iran. Uh, Iranian culture is arguably the oldest contiguous culture in the world. They've had the fewest number of government changes of any society over the the life of their existence. They're probably arguably only on their fifth governing system, which for 6,000 plus years is fairly impressive, I would argue. And the issue is that this is is all mountains, Uh, not like sharp mountains like the Rockies uh, and not having lots of... um, interconnections like the Appalachians, but you've got relatively high mountains with relatively large valleys and the valleys are allowed to develop on their own. And so Persopolis, which is where the Persians are ultimately from, was one of the bigger valleys. And what happened was they got a populace, populace enough, they were able to spill out of that to the next valleys, conquer the people there, and over the centuries, over the millennia, Persianized them. And this continued on and on and on and on and on until we get to at the edge of the mountains. And then when you have a population surge, you go out and conquer the known universe. Uh, so it's a mountain people held together by the sinews of trade and intermarriage and a little bit of light genocide. And even now in the 21st century, only about half of the population still considers themselves ethnic Persian. So if they continue at the rate they've been going, we're going to be in roughly the mid, oh, I don't know, 64th century by the time they finally finish the process. So what you do in that environment, when you're not experiencing a population boom that allows you to conquer everybody, is you try to just keep a lid on everything because you're literally occupying half of your own population. So Iran maintains today a roughly a million-man army and one of the most aggressive intelligence systems in the world focused internally to make sure that the non-ethnic Persians, the Balochis, the Arabs, the Azeris, uh, are always kept under the Iranian thumb, either by a degree of integration or a degree of oppression or some combination thereof. Now, for those of you who are not living in Iran, the problem here is you've got a million-man army and an intelligence system that's very good at suppressing dissent and rooting through sectarian minorities. So the same tools they use for domestic control can also be purpose for external influence. That's not the primary goal. And if push comes to shove, they'll all come home. Uh, But it does make Iran much more flexible as a strategic power than a mountain country has any reason to be. Normally mountain countries, like whether it's Chechnya or Appalachia, are locked in on themselves and they very rarely influence anything beyond their borders. Iran has figured out a governing model that allows it to do both. How did trade impact them over the year? How did they how did they trade with through those valleys, or was there any maritime traffic, or how did that come about? Well, we've got three big phases. Uh, Phase one is all the internal stuff. When you've got all of these mountains Okay, so I've been paying very little attention to the to the news. What I have been paying attention to is this guy, Benjamin McAvoy, right? I spent $25 on his Patreon for hardcore literature, and 
I just love the way he analyzes books. So here he is, How to Read Moby Dick. Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was quite a cherished friend of Herman Melville's. Ernest Hemingway, Cormac McCarthy, Tony Morrison, Thomas Pynchon, Don DeLillo, John Steinbeck, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Harper Lee, and Robert Frost. Certainly one only needs to look at that rundown of great writers to know that the American tradition is one of the most exciting and fertile literary traditions in the entire world. It's a tragedy that Herman Melville was underappreciated in his own time. He was not timely as a writer, and Moby Dick would go on to be posthumously revered, in part thanks to a revival of Melville studies in the first half of the 20th century, which resulted in a deep fascination with Melville's language and his magnum opus, Moby Dick, a fascination that has only picked up more and more steam with every passing year. Today, one says Moby Dick, and one is immediately confronted with the image of the Leviathan that has entered the common imagination. One thinks of the monomaniacal, peg-legged Captain Ahab, one thinks of the tattooed cannibal Queequeg. Indeed, one thinks of many of the crew members of the Pequod. And of course, one most certainly thinks of our enigmatic narrator, the one who implores us to call him Ishmael. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. St yeah, it's uh, largely a fun read. Moby Dick. It, it's just uh, surprisingly energetic and, and captivating. So yeah, I love love Charles Dickens. I, I've read all of his uh, great novels. Also read uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, Great Gatsby. I'm not sure that there's any famous uh, you know, dominant classic novel that I haven't read from uh, Don Quixote to Les Miserables, The Count of Monte Cristo, or the great novels by John Steinbeck. But that's what I'm primarily doing these days. I started off with uh, Blood Meridian and uh, now just powering my way through Moby Dick, but I'm spending even more time listening to the literary analyses by this guy, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin McAvoy. Just, I love his Students work, may fear the novel. They may fear being assigned Moby Dick to read and even the most intrepid fearless, deep reader of great literature may find themselves abandoning the work halfway through, whilst others will become so enamoured with the work that they find themselves attending 24-hour read-alongs. And falling ever deeper in love with Moby Dick, they discover that one reading most certainly... So one way that I became good at math in college, right, after being 
so bad that I had to repeat beginning algebra, right? <laughs> I took beginning algebra at community college and I went all the way up through calculus. I started hanging out in the math lab. I started hanging out with people who are good at math. And if you want to develop your you know, literary work, right, hang out with people, get inspired by people, listen to, to people like this guy who love and understand great literature. Certainly is not enough. They discover that one must go on reading and rereading Moby Dick. So I found him because I was just devouring all the YouTube commentaries I could on uh, Cormac McCarthy's Cormac McCarthy's Blood 1985 Meridian. novel Blood Meridian, or The Evening Redness in the West, based on the exploits of the infamous Glanton Gang, a group of scalp hunters wreaking carnage on the Texas-Mexico border of the 1850s, is a brutal, beautiful, inspired novel and a modern visionary masterpiece, one that demands our full attention despite its unsettling nature. So today we're going to talk about how to read this novel in preparation for the Blood Meridian lecture series and guided reading experience at the Hardcore Literature Book Club. Blood Meridian is a difficult novel and it presents many challenges. Its challenges are both emotional and cognitive. Cormac McCarthy invests his work with great amounts of aesthetic splendor and his prose reaches the heights of sublimity evocative of Melville, Faulkner, Shakespeare and the King James Bible. But the work also very much bears the marks of being a postmodern novel and presents many challenges to casual and deep readers alike. I also love the podcast, uh, If Books Could Kill. It's a lefty podcast, but this is like the very best of podcasting. I mean, they really know how to do it. Can you imagine that a podcast uh, deconstructing airport bestsellers, one of the, the top podcasts in the world, and they recently took on Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature. And I remember there was a regular guy on their show a few years ago who was just berating the stupidity of Stephen Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And I don't have a strong opinion. I haven't read The Better Angels of Our Nature, but one of his, his key arguments was that Stephen Pinker doesn't take into account World War I and World War II. And I said, I really find that hard to believe that a guy is writing a, a book on how we are morally progressing and he just totally ignores World War I and World War II. So I hadn't read the book, but I did, as I was carrying on a online streaming conversation with this this critic who was just you know saying how stupid the Stephen Pinker's book was I just quickly did a search of the book and, and find it it does take into account World War One and World War Two. So I point this out to my regular streaming companion who's berating the Stephen Pinker book and he doesn't pause for a second. He just no, 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 just goes on. Like I point out that he's just lying, that he's completely out to lunch in, you know, this fundamental part of his critique and he is not at all ashamed. And I, in fact, most of the people I have live streamed with are not ashamed when you point out that they are saying things that are just patently untrue, that, that show they have you know, very little understanding about what they, they talk about. It seems to be shamelessness, you know, a lack of fidelity to the truth, right? a lack of moral rigor, just an ease with, with you know, dispensing BS is what uh, you know enables most people to live stream. But when I encounter such people, and I encounter them way too often, particularly through, through live streaming, 
I know they're heading for trouble. Like with, if you can, with absolute assurance, make all sorts of points that are patently false. And then we all say things that are false, but then it's pointed out to you what's accurate. And you don't apologize. You don't retract. You just keep blathering on and you don't feel any shame, any embarrassment. You, you are not at all, you know, rendered circumspect by, by having these obvious facts pointed out to you. Right? This is someone who's on a very bad track in life. Humility means, in my understanding of uh, the big book and the 12 and 12 by Bill W. from these classic books from Alcoholic Anonym Alcoholics Anonymous, humility means being in touch with reality. And if you're making all sorts of pronouncements about books that have no basis in fact, right, you're li likely largely leading a life removed from reality. And when you remove yourself from reality, you get humiliated. And if you are walking through life without getting humiliated on a regular basis, that means you're, you're living in reality, right? You are humble, right? If you're having interactions with other people on a regular basis and you're not getting regularly humiliated, that's because you've learned to largely live in reality. You don't have an exaggerated sense of your own importance. Now, I know there are lots of 12-step sponsors who want their sponsees to say, I don't know, but it's no mitzvah. It's no good deed to say, I don't know when you do know. Right? If you are good at painting or live streaming or making money or you know, doing uh, the, the accounting of a, a project, right, then know what your strengths are. Right? There's, no, there's no enviable form of humility to deny your strengths, to deny your gifts. Right? Living in reality means you recognize the things that you're good at and you recognize the things that you're not so good at. So I don't tend to be a minute detail person, right? I'm not the type of personality you want checking the engines before the plane takes off. But if I can live in the reality, understand and accept that this is my predisposition, right? Then I can start setting up protocols that will help me deal with my tendencies towards carelessness. So if I want to make sure I don't leave the house without taking certain things, then I take my keys and, and my, my wallet and my phone, and I put them all together in one place so that when I leave the house, all right, I have to take everything. It's all there in one place reminding me. And so as I get older and older, I'm 57 now, I have more and more protocols about how to deal with reality. And I don't trust my own natural, sometimes sloppy, careless, insensitive tendencies. All right, I was listening to the Better Angels of Our Nature review on the podcast, If Books Could Kill, and I appreciated this excerpt. He's running away from somebody, and they shot him in the back. And there's mass graves from tens of thousands of years ago where like 40% of the skeletons have some sign of violence, right? People will have defensive wounds on their arms, which looks like they were kind of being attacked with like an axe or a machete. People have caved in skulls, which look like they were hit with some sort of... Yes, there's a huge difference between humility and humiliation. Humiliation is what happens when you don't have humility. Humiliation is what happens when you're not living in reality. A blunt object. Mm -hmm. And so the kind of brutality that we see now actually has a very long lineage in humanity. I I'm sort of interested in how he addresses the Holocaust, World War I, etc. Because I, I think, to me, it seems intuitively correct that the ambient violence of hunter-gatherer societies was way higher mm -hmm. than it is now. But we are now capable of violence on a scale that they were not. And so right. you get these peaks of violence in the modern era that are well beyond anything that could have been produced in the past. Right. This, this is the kind of nuance that he does not engage in in the book. Mm -hmm. And all of the experts who debunk this book, experts fucking hate this book, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's not as simple of a narrative as 
he describes. And also, my impression with this entire section of the book was just like, he doesn't really need this, right? It's it's true that there's lots of evidence that hunter-gatherers engaged in violence, right? They killed each other. That, that is very well established. But what he's doing is he's using these like skeletons and like fossilized remains to say that they killed each other at a rate much higher than we do now. Right? Uh-huh. And we're talking about, again, 60,000 years plus so in this sense, with these big overarching themes that are not backed up by evidence, Stephen Pinker is very Central European, right? When you look at the work of a lot of uh, French and German and Austrian academics, right, they pick these huge overarching themes and they tend to lack you know, the substance and the details to back up the huge overarching themes, while the Anglo tendency is to focus on Picayune details and to largely avoid constructing huge overarching themes. Human history, right? We're talking about every region of the world, climactic conditions. The number of skeletons that are preserved from that time is minuscule, right? We have very little information. Mm -hmm. And something like a skeleton having its skull bashed in, well, that could have been a tree falling on them. That could have been an animal that did that. And also, societies back then burying their dead appears to be relatively rare. Mm -hmm. It could be that they only buried people that were killed in some violent way, right? Right. Okay, good discussion about humility and humiliation. So Cyberview says, I think there's a difference between humility and humiliation. You can be humble and you can still be humiliated by someone else. You can, but if you're living in reality, all right, it's really hard to be humiliated by someone else. All right. If you have taken stock of what you have done, the good and the bad, right? When you recognize that given who you were, at various times in your life, you could not have acted differently, right? Given that you're doing the best you could at the time to meet your needs, and now it it seems embarrassing and shameful. But if you're living in the reality of recognizing your journey, right, you're much less likely to be humiliated because you've come to terms with, with what you've done, right? I don't fear coming on doing a live stream, even though I've done all sorts of scandalous and you know, embarrassing things that most people would not go on and do a live stream after living the kind of sordid life that I have lived. But to the extent that I have come to terms with you know, what I've done, that I'm not you know, denying it, not uh, minimizing it, not living in fantasy about it, but you know, recognizing the reality of my own sordid, you know, frequently embarrassing and you know, humbling journey, then I don't fear what, what nearly as much what people throw in my face. Now, it's very easy to get out of touch with reality. But if you're in touch with reality, the good and bad of what you've done and the painful nature of your own journey, right? Someone starts throwing things in your face from the past that you've done. It's not going to hurt nearly as much because you can say, yeah, that's true. Right? You heard, I think on Sunday, I played some exchanges of my discussion with Tom Stoffel, the Age of Treason blogger. And he pointed out that none of the, the big Jewish journalists follow me. And it's true, right? I, I am not you know, followed by many, if any, elites. And as long as I you know, live in that reality that you know, I don't have this huge following, that I don't have this elite following, then when someone points it out, it's not embarrassing to me. I don't flush bright red. Like, when was the last time you remember you know, me flushing bright red? I, I do occasionally. Right, I, I do lose touch with with reality, particularly when I'm listening to a lot of Anastasia songs. But uh, the more I'm able to come to terms with, you know, who I am, what I've done, my journey, my my vulnerabilities, then the less likely I am to be knocked off stride, even by people who are trying to humiliate me and bring me down. So 
let's go back to the, the chat here. Look at Jesus. He was humble. He still experienced humiliation. I don't recall Jesus experiencing humiliation. I, there are a lot of people in the Gospels who tried to humiliate Jesus. I don't re- remember him experiencing that as humiliation. Yes, you can come to terms. It's not instantaneous. It takes time to process the humiliation of shade people uh, throw at you. Well, it's easy to tell when you process something. It's when you can talk about it with equanimity. Right? When my voice cracks and breaks, I think it did once during my Tan Stoffel Age of Treason uh, discussion, right? That, that reflected something that I hadn't processed yet. So when, I can, when you or I can talk about painful, humbling things, setbacks, embarrassing struggles from the past, our, our failures, and we can do it without the voice cracking, without our face going into all sorts of weird twitches, right? Then you've processed it, right? You've come through to the other side, right? If you can talk about something with equanimity and without, you know, all sorts of contortions going through your system, right? You've processed it. You, you've come out the other side. And it's important work. And I love, I just encountered this video last night. How to metabolize emotional pain so we don't take it out on others. I'll come back to it. I want to play just a little bit more from If Fox Could Kill and their focus on the Steven Pinker bestseller, The Better Angels of Our Nature. The soldiers that died in a big war, and this is like a glorification of them, or maybe not. I mean, we, we just know so little about this time. And so when you read the sort of expert debunkings of him, they're all just like, you don't need to do this. Yeah. We know that there was violence, but like saying that 40% of the skeletons found at some site had signs of violence. Well, the signs of violence are super, it's really a judgment call, like what scratches on somebody's femur mean. It might be the case that that was a particularly violent hunter-gatherer society. Yeah. But in different regions of the world, different time periods, they might not have been. Right. He, he, he at some point puts like specific numbers on this. He's like, the homicide rate among hunter-gatherers. And you're like, dude, no, we don't, right. we we don't, don't know. know. We don't know that. Yeah. He also cites accounts from kind of current, quote unquote, uncontacted tribes. So there's still communities that live in like Amazon rainforest. Mm-hmm. These societies are not representative of how societies would have been you know, 50,000 years ago, partly because by definition, there's no such thing as anthropological accounts of uncontacted tribes. Right. It is true that those societies appear to have higher rates of violence than like we do, but mm-hmm. a lot of that is like competition over scarce resources mm-hmm. due to the fact that like their habitat is being destroyed. And a lot of the uncontacted tribes that exist today have actually been in contact with the rest of society. And some of them saw Steven Pinker's book on the shelves and just decided to withdraw back <laughs> into hunter-gatherer societies. The book kind of gets rolling or the book gets interesting once he gets to settled societies and essentially when we have written records. Mm -hmm. So the thing to know is that right now, current homicide rates are in Western Europe around one homicide per 100,000 population. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the the benchmark. In America, it's six. Yeah, but have you met Americans? You'd want to come to (laughs) Maybe we're just six times more deserving of death. In Canada, it's like two (laughs) per 100,000. So these are all, you know, very low rates, right? Uh If you go back to roughly 1,200, right, in the middle of the Middle Ages, you find rates of around 100 per 100,000. These are societies that have up to 100 times more homicides than we do now. I I like to imagine the first guy who was just like, watching a good chunk of their friends get murdered and was like, we should start writing this down, you know? (laughs) And so if you look at the trend all across Western Europe, starting in around 1200, once we start getting written records, you see the same slow but very steady decline in homicide rates. Mm -hmm. There's lots of nuance to go over, but zooming all the way out, it's like you look at Western Europe, super violent in the year 1200, very nonviolent by the time we get like 1800s, 1900s. Uh-huh. One of the genuinely really interesting things about this is that the, the patterns of homicides, to the extent that we know this, is most of the homicides way, way, way back in the Middle Ages were like men killing men. The drop in homicides is almost exclusively like stranger danger. So John Mearsheimer's classic magnum opus work is the tragedy of great power politics. And the nature of reality is that often what is best for us and for our group is terrible for other people and other groups, right? So consistently, if you come, if you rely on people's benevolence rather than their self-interest, right, you're going to be consistently disappointed. So other people letting you down, 
right, is because you have placed yourself in a position where other people have to choose between their own best interests and being kind to you against their own best interests. So the, the nature of reality is that different groups, different individuals have conflicts of interest. And when other people have priorities that are not what we expected, we give a very dramatic name to that. We call it betrayal, right? So if someone sleeps with your, your wife, right, your best friend sleeps with your wife, you feel betrayed. Well, what's happened is your friend has simply put a higher priority on his hookup with your wife than on his friendship with you. If you get fired from a job where you've worked really hard, well, you expected that your boss would put a higher priority on your services than he does. And you experience that as betrayal. But betrayal is just a hyperbolic, dramatic term for when other people have different priorities from what we expected. Your homicides, like mm. people killing each other, you know, these like duels and shit. Like, do you spit your thumb at me, sir? Right, that man over there is wearing his handkerchief directed towards me. Exactly, exactly. Sir, one of us must die. We also see a faster and larger drop among like the upper classes. Mm -hmm. So, like, the aristocracy stopped killing each other, and then eventually that kind of trickles down to like common folk, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. And so, this this trend is roughly accurate. But of course, Pinker then has to explain why this happened. Right. His main explanation for this is the emergence of like the modern state. Yeah. This is uh, this is from uh, Pinker's description of this. He says, during Norman rule in England, some genius recognized the lucrative possibilities in nationalizing justice. For centuries, well, sometime it's in your tribe's interest to get along and trade with our groups. At other times, right, times of great peril, right, those who look askance at our groups, right, look with great fear and suspicion at our groups, they will be more likely to survive, right? Sometimes hostility to our groups allows you to minimize you know, getting the plague, right? enables you to keep up strong defenses so other people don't come along and massacre you and take your women and take your goods. So sometimes an open trading, you know, liberal attitude towards outgroups is the most evolutionary adaptive strategy and enables you to pass on your, your genes and have, have offspring that are able to provide for themselves and pass on their genes. But in other situations, right, there will be times of desperate peril and Hostility to our groups will be a more adaptive strategy. So the 2024 election will largely be decided on how much peril do Americans feel like they're in. If Americans feel like they're in great peril, they will have more hostility to our groups and they'll be more likely to vote for Donald Trump. If they feel safe and prosperous and the election comes down to promises of social welfare spending, right, then Joe Biden and the Democrats will be much more likely to win. The legal system had treated homicide as a tort. In lieu of vengeance, the victim's family would demand a payment from the killer's family. King Henry I redefined homicide as an offense against the state. Murder cases were no longer John Doe versus Richard Roe, but the Crown versus John Doe. Or later in the United States, the People versus John Doe. Mm -hmm. Justice was administered by roving courts that would periodically visit a locale and hear the accumulated cases. To ensure that all homicides were presented to the courts, each death was investigated by a local agent of the Crown, the coroner. Yep. And so, you know, what philosophers call like the state monopoly on violence explains why people wouldn't do this kind of entrepreneurial. So we're never going to evolve to a point where a significant number of people aren't incentivized to commit violence, right? When you have two groups fighting over one particular piece of geography and so that you have a clash of interest that has become life and death, when a clash of interest has become incredibly intense, right, you are very likely to have genocide. And the modern liberal enlightenment perspective is that, oh, if we just use our power of reason, right, we can find you know, peaceful peaceful ways out of these inherent dilemmas, but you can't always find peaceful ways. Sometimes violence is the most 
adaptive solution to you know, very trying and difficult situations. I'm thinking, I had a rabbi, a reformed rabbi, Mordecai Findlay, he said, all great philosophical ideas were summarized in a pop song. And I'm thinking that Ronnie Goldman's classic work in progress on conservative, uh, conservative concerns about uh, cultural oppression, right, was summed up by the song by Supertramp, the logical song. Right? When I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful, a miracle, it was beautiful and magical, right? So how do you have a magical mystery mysterious uh, view of the world, right? You have a trap view of the world, that there are all sorts of forces out there that are shaping the world around you, and the world around you can't just be explained by science. All the birds in the trees, they'd be singing so happily, joyfully, playfully watching me. But then they sent me away to teach me how to be sensible, to be rational, to take on an enlightenment, modern, secular, liberal, left-wing perspective, to be logical and responsible and practical and engage in harm reduction. They showed me a world where I could be so dependable and clinical and intellectual and cynical. All right, so there's uh, Ronnie Goodman's book, essentially boiled down in the song by Supertramp, the, the logical song. So people on the left and liberals, they place much greater faith in the power of reason to direct people, while those who are traditional see, understand that we are driven often by forces that are more powerful than our reason. So Steven Pinker believes that we've become much more rational, that Enlightenment culture has become more dominant, and this has produced a safer world. But at the same time, there, there are some ways that this world is safer, but there are other ways where this world is much more dangerous than ever before, such as the threat of nuclear exchanges. Violence anymore. I don't need to kill you and your family. I can just report it to the local constable, and then he will put you on trial, and he will punish you appropriately. <laughs> and so this also explains why murders fell among the upper classes first, is basically they had access to the court system, uh -huh. right? If a poor person says, oh, this person has like violated my rights in some way, they don't give a shit. The criminal justice system didn't give a shit back then, right? But upper classes could start to use the court system as a way to settle disputes between each other. And then again, over time, as state capacity increases, we start getting poor people being able to use these systems. Right, the right. second explanation is what he calls the civilizing process. He's basing this on a philosopher called Norbert Elias, who writes a book called The Civilizing Process. And when we think of you know, what is civilization, a huge component of it is... Right. So the civilizing process talked about here is that we, we, we take on this, this worldview that uh, we allow reason to control more and more of our behavior, that we develop a perspective on life where we're essentially understanding ourselves as, as being in, in a bubble, that uh, what goes on around us doesn't have to negatively affect us. And so it's an attempt for us to transcend our primal drives, such as loyalty towards particular blood and particular soil. Resisting our impulses, right? All of us, a couple times a day, you're probably like, I want to punch that fucking guy. But you don't do it because you're like, ah, oh, you know, I'll go to jail or like, it's not right. I wouldn't want somebody to do it to me, right? right. This is really the, the core thesis of Pinker's book. Over time, we've all gotten better at resisting our impulses, right? We have these better angels. He says, the habits of refinement, self-control, and consideration that are second nature to us had to be acquired. That's why we call them second nature. And they develop... Right, but they are acquired at a cost, right? by attenuating our primal instincts of loyalty towards family, tribe, God, tradition, to a particular group group of uh, people, right? to a particular loyalty to blood and soil. 
in Europe over the course of its modern history. Norbert Elias proposed that over a span of several centuries, beginning in the 1100s and maturing in the 1700s, Europeans increasingly inhibited their impulses and anticipated the long-term consequences of their actions and took other people's thoughts and feelings into consideration. A culture of honor, the readiness to take revenge, gave way to a culture of dignity, the readiness to control one's emotion. Okay. I'm not saying that that is like wrong, but it feels like a pretty aggressive narrative to prescribe based on a relatively limited data set. This is actually the... Yeah, Stephen Pinker does prescribe, and many of these airport bestsellers, Malcolm Gladwell and company, they prescribe aggressive narratives based on paltry evidence. That's excellent uh, summary there. Right, I love, love, love this video, and I think it's particularly important for much of the live streaming world how to metabolize emotional pain so we don't take it out on so others. So what I mean when I say the word metabolize is essentially being present with our emotional pain. So rather than pushing it away, can we actually sit with it and find ways to integrate it into our lives? And the better we are at doing this, the better we are also going to be at staying in healthy, intimate connection. Because in order to stay... But it's not... A lot of fun to be in intimate connection with someone who is incredibly detached from reality, including the reality of their own soul, their own psyche, their own wounds. In healthy, intimate connection, we need to have the whole of ourselves online and available to us. And the whole of who we are includes all of the pain of the past. And So this woman is sleeved, right? She has an incredible number of tattoos, and I'm no fan of tattoos, but I am a big fan of her channel. Her name's Heidi Preeb. She has a graduate degree in attachment theory. All of the pain of the present and all of the pain that eventually the future will bring into our lives. But quite a few of us, particularly those who grew up insecurely attached, have really big blocks around healthily processing emotional pain. And there's absolutely no judgment here. For about 25 years of my life, I avoided emotional pain like it was the plague. It was my full-time. So my father was a big believer in allowing the kingly power of reason to, to govern us and to try to ignore one's pain. I remember I would fall over as a kid and like I'd bloody my knees, right? I'd be in great pain. My father would yank me up, and if we were around other people, he'd say, he's fine. Right? When I'd fall off a trampoline, and I'd come crashing down to the ground, and my father would go, he's fine. Right? You could not you know, show any pain, essentially, in the home that I grew up in, and that was a really lousy way to grow up. It was really bad for my father. It warped my father and uh, warped me as well. I'm job to never experience or sit with emotional pain. And it created nothing but more problems in my life the longer I did that. So what we're going to talk about today is how to not get stuck in that trap. Because very often when we do get stuck in that trap of avoiding pain, the pain comes out anyway. But we often end up unconsciously or accidentally. Right. So I feel with you know, most live streamers that it's a way that they can avoid their pain right? instead of facing themselves and facing the reality of their own vulnerability, right, they create this you know, vicarious second life where they can be a keyboard warrior. Offloading the pain onto the people who are closest to us. So today we're going to talk about how to avoid that trap. For the first part of this video, we're going to look at what happens 
when we don't know how to metabolize and be present with pain. And then in the second half of the video, we're going to talk about how to. And uh, just a complete side question. Have you ever had a, a gay male boss? Right? I've had dozens of bosses in my life. I don't believe I've ever had a gay, gay male boss. They seem to be a smaller subset of the population than, than is, is gay. So I noticed a tr large number of gays in talking about male homosexuals in service positions because that way they can, they can meet people and, and extend and expand their, their social life. But they don't seem to be, is that just me? Is that just my, my life experience? But I've been asking friends and uh, none of my friends have ever had a, a gay boss. So I was talking about differences between male bosses and female bosses, which are generalizable differences that men and women you know, act differently, that men are much more hierarchical, women are much more relational. Uh, gay men are much more like women in some ways. Gay women are much more like men in some ways. To start an upward spiral where we are able to integrate the lessons that are often incredibly important. So someone like uh, Richard Spencer or J.F. Garupi, or virtually all the, the main live streamers on the alt-right all strike me as people who refuse to face their emotional pain, instead try to externalize it, escape it, sublimate it through you know, online political antics. That pain is there to teach us. So I want to base the entire premise of this video on this quote by John Green that says, the thing about pain is that it demands to be felt. So this is a- Yeah, and if you don't, it's incredibly warping. So let's see what's uh, going on here with Jean-Francois. I was struck by someone raising the theory on Twitter. Hey, it's true that Taylor Lawrence was supposed to be the journalist who doxed libs of TikTok. Under no circumstance would I, of course, you can't dox me because I'm, uh, I'm already a public guy with my true name. But if I was an anonymous person and you were to be a journalist of the New York Times that doxes me, there is no circumstance under which I would make an interview with you. Uh, there is only, in fact, one circumstance in which I may be interested, which is if I have the impression that we will get a moment alone where I have the occasion to chop your head, wrap your body in plastic, and bury you in a place where I can never be held accountable for the murder. And it would be clean. But if that doesn't happen, I don't want to meet someone who doxed me. And yet, here they are, you know. So JF's wife has gone missing. And a large number of people believe that JF Garapi is responsible. And here he talks about how he would like to murder people like uh, Taylor Lorenz. Just uh, incredible well, have... moment. Right. Th this is someone who seems you know, pretty removed from uh, processing their emotional pain. The occasion to chop your head, wrap your body in plastic, and bury you in a place where I can never be held accountable for the murder. And it would be clean. He uh, does seem capable of that. A line from the fiction book, The Fault in Our Stars. But I think that it is pointing directly at the heart of a very deep truth, which is that when emotional pain comes into our lives, 
we do not have the option to not experience it. The only options we get are whether we are going to deal with it consciously or unconsciously. Often when we deal with it unconsciously, we end up accidentally subjecting all of the people around us to completely unnecessary pain. Right, so my father had a childhood where he didn't receive much parental attention and he found that the best way that he could get attention was becoming a Christian evangelist. And so he completely devoted himself to evangelizing and never learned to make peace with just one-on-one interactions. Right, My father primarily had fans. He didn't have friends. He got attention by preaching, but he never learned to you know, make peace with himself, with his sons, and with most other people, unless he could preach to them. Rather than dealing with it consciously and intentionally in a way that actually enriches our ability to be present and there for the people in our lives. So we're going to start off by looking at what it looks like when we can't do that conscious processing because we have not been shown a model for it. So we're going through life and a moment of pain arises, right? This could be something very significant. It could be something like a loss or a betrayal or a death. So something that really dysregulates our system. Or it could be something smaller. It could be an ego bruise. It could be a jab to our self-esteem. It could be essentially anything that comes in and dysregulates our system in a way that we find incredibly unpleasant. And our options in this moment are to either stay present with the pain, which we're often only able to do if we have learned how to do that through example or through intentionally cultivating the skills that we're going to talk about today, or our bodies become overwhelmed and go immediately into avoidance tactics around the pain. Now, this is not the same as attachment avoidance, though it can overlap with it. So we're going to make another distinction here. We can avoid the pain either through repressing the pain. So this is what happens when something comes into our system and our system decides. So I've had the pleasure in my life to have had relationships with emotionally honest women and who would just be forthright about this hurts me, this frightens me. I I need this from you. I I need you to look after this. I need you to avoid saying and doing that. I feel this right now. I feel that right now. It was very good for me. This is too much for me. I can't deal with it. I'm going to block it out of our conscious awareness and tell myself this is fine. It doesn't hurt me. Make up some story about why the pain doesn't matter and move. Right. (laughs) It seems like a lot of men, perhaps most men do this on with things, or we can go into externalizing. When we're externalizing our pain, we're aware that it's there. We're aware that we don't feel quite... Right. Where does the rage come from for, for so many people in the outrage industry? All right. It's, it's a way to externalize their inner pain and take it out through political mockery of opponents and uh, for berating people and chopping people up. Right. But we don't feel as though we ourselves are capable of dealing with the pain. So we project it onto some other person or some other situation, and we try to work it out externally instead of internally. And we can either become dependent on other people to caretake us emotionally. Right. So when you're around people who externalize their pain instead of taking care of things internally, 
not a lot of fun, right? You, dealing with people who are fundamentally broken, fundamentally fake, fundamentally detached from reality. So we're going to go out into the world looking for a savior because unconsciously we believe that if we find that savior. Right. And so people who are unwilling to you know, deal with their own pain go out into the world looking for a savior and they look for a pundit. They look for a guru. They look for religion. They look for Dennis Prager's. They look for you know Oprah Winfrey's. They look for someone, some type of guru to lay a blanket of meaning over the universe. Right? Someone who will come along and make them feel good and, and give them answers about how, how the world works. And by obtaining right the, the mechanics of salvation, right? By obtaining, you know, particular political, cultural, literary, religious, psychological, spiritual worldview, right? They try through the power of the intellect or through the power of the guru, right, to you know, overcome the mess that's inside of them, the, the vulnerability that's inside of them. And so when you take this route, which I've done much of my life, right, it makes you particularly vulnerable to falling for, for cults and for gurus. Uh, this is why I, I fell so hard for someone like uh, Dennis Prager. Here, we can bypass ever feeling the pain. Or we're going to go out into the world and look for someone to project that pain onto so that we are working it out interpersonally through fighting and arguing and blaming another person for our pain. So I often had people say to me, I don't know who you're mad at. It's not me. So I would lash out at people. And I was so grateful when I'd lash out at someone who was wiser and and they were able to understand that that whatever was driving me it really had nothing to do with them. So I, I encounter people now who are like get get mad at me, and I, I will realize, hey, this has nothing to do with me. Rather than once again being able to sit with it. And on the other side of things, when we are repressing our pain, this can cause two very distinct problems in intimate relationships. One is that anywhere we have pain that we have told ourselves we do not have pain or that it doesn't matter to us that something bad happened to us, we are going to be completely intolerant and unempathetic with other people who are experiencing that same pain in their life. Yeah, I see that. All right, People who are out of touch with reality, who deny some gaping psychic wound that has completely warped them, they encounter other people who are struggling with a similar wound and they can't deal with it. They will just be filled with disgust for other people's vulnerability. Lives. So when we get into close relationships, if we are people who have walled ourselves off from feeling and giving ourselves empathy around the pain that we have experienced in life, we're also going to be walled off from giving other people that empathy. And so now the other person who is coming. So this is still me, right? I am so frightened about getting flooded with empathy that I tend to project a cold, cynical, hard exterior most of the time. And it has to be usually someone special that I allow myself to be vulnerable with. Coming to us for support and co-regulation is going to be the one who is processing our pain on our behalf when they get shut out in those moments. Alternately, we might displace our pain onto someone else. So find another person who looks like they are in pain in a similar way to how we have once been in pain. So a lot of men appear high-functioning, but they're only high-functioning as long as they have a woman in their life who helps them you know, regulate their pain, regulate their emotions. And then that, that one 
relationship, which has become the emotional foundation of their life, if that goes away, then the man will just fall apart. And I mean, it's often been true of me. I think I found you know, a great relationship or a better way of living, but I'm borrowing the functioning of other people, right? I'm using them to regulate myself and my, my emotions and my pain. And then when that relationship diminishes or goes away, I will crash. And become incredibly over-involved in trying to fix their pain. Because we tell ourselves unconsciously, if I can resolve this inside of this other person where it feels safer to approach it, then I... I tried to resolve a lot of pain inside of women. Right? I had one girlfriend who explicitly said, you know, take all your anger and rage at women and take it out on me in the bedroom. And so I had various you know, female caregivers when I was a child who would smack me around and bounce me off the walls. I had various female caregivers who would sometimes take delight in, you know, humiliating me. And I developed an antipathy for, you know, certain types of women who reminded me of these women who smashed me. And then I developed a chip on my shoulder towards women. And then I discovered pornography and it's like, oh, great. All those haughty women who humiliated me. Well, now I can see the, you know, naked and humiliated and, you know, covered with, you know, some man's essence. And that was how I would deal with my pain or I take all my frustrations and I would rub them out in, inside of some woman. Or if the rest of my life wasn't working, you know, at least I was going to bed with, with a lot of women. At least I must have significance. I felt like a man temporarily, you know, when I got a woman to take her clothes off and open up her, her legs. And that would work briefly, but then then I'd crash and the, and the void inside of me would return. I don't have to deal with my own. I will have fixed this pain through someone else. So rather than looking for a savior, we try to become one for other people. And all of these options, projection, dependence, getting over-involved in someone's pain, denying other people's pain, all of these end up putting the pain that we could not metabolize and process ourselves onto someone else. They do it in different ways, but at the end of the day, pain demands to be felt, and so it gets felt, but it gets felt by the people around us, not just us. So what we're going to talk about next is how to make sure that we are not making this happen, that we are not avoiding our pain and unintentionally offloading it onto other people and the people we tend So because I was for much of my life, you know, frustrated with the reality of my life due to the vegetarian diet that I was raised with and then unthinkingly continued. I was in poor health for basically all my life until about two and a half years ago. And so with poor health and therefore diminished professional and social and, and romantic prospects, I was particularly prone for you know, exciting liaisons that would make me forget about my troubles. And I would just try to bury myself in the various equally damaged women that I'd go to bed with. So when I'd go to a party, like I'd find those women who are about as damaged as I was. And frequently they had fathers who were sex addicts. And so I pinged something in them. They pinged something in me. And we temporarily solve each other's pain. But uh, it didn't, didn't last long. It wasn't a sustainable path forward. Okay. I need to go work out. I'll talk to you blokes later. Bye-bye.